Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 507 of the podcast and it is Saturday the 12th of September 2020 as I record this. So today I'm talking to Erin Wright about publishing wide for the win. We talk about the mindset shift that comes from publishing wide, why libraries are so important and tips for going wide with your books, whatever stage you're at in the author journey. Talking about going wide, I shared my latest Kobo writing life map uh, on Twitter this week. I have now sold books in 155 countries. (laughs) which is crazy. And that is just on Kobo and that is just an ebook format. And so that in itself is just fascinating because, and if you are traditionally published in any form, I really suggest that you look at your contracts, see which territories they cover and consider self-publishing in other markets. You might be leaving money on the table if you are not available all over the world. And on the international publishing topic that we're going to get into in the interview, I wanted to mention Mark Williams' International Insights series on the Alliance of Independent Authors blog, which is available to everyone at selfpublishingadvice.org. He wrote a piece about Amazon this week, which makes it clear that you are missing out on a lot of markets if you only publish exclusively with Amazon in ebook print and or audio. So link in the show notes. But that I think is important for this discussion today. So that interview is coming up. So I have a bit of a longer segment on futurist stuff today. (laughs) So firstly, I did a Coursera mini course on futures thinking. Last week, I think it was And one of the interesting things is that they define a futurist as someone who does not predict the future and expect to be right, because who can be right, but more someone who looks at signals in the world and thinks about possibilities ahead, not the exact path, but ways in which things could go. A futurist's job is to rethink what is possible so we're not shocked or blindsided by the possibilities. And I I really enjoyed that definition because I've thought I can't be a futurist because I'm not trained in this or anything. But now I think, well, I am a futurist. I do look at signals in the world and think about possibilities. So I want you to consider that as what I talk about in this segment. Maybe you already knew that already. But when I talk about futurist things, I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm saying these are signals that are interesting to me. And I'm sharing them with you with some thoughts. but I'm not suggesting that this is our future. But it's good to know so you're not blindsided. So I wanted to praise things with that. On this topic, I have been talking about GPT-2 for 18 months. 
and about GPT-3 since it was launched in June. But it is now making its way into the mainstream writing world. So this week, The Guardian in the UK, which if you don't know The Guardian in the UK, it is a very, let's say, liberal elite. <laughs> it is definitely liberal elite newspaper. It's, I read it, I'm a subscriber to The Guardian. It is a liberal leaning, left leaning paper. It is very culture orientated, very book orientated. It is definitely a curator of that kind of material. So for The Guardian, and they are not very technology focused, got to point that out. So for The Guardian to publish an article this week written by GPT-3, edited by a human, was fascinating to me because this is not a paper. It's a paper that I primarily do trust, although I read other papers. For those in the UK, (laughs) so you can judge where I sit on the scale of things. I also read the FT, the Financial Times, and I also read the Telegraph. And I read a lot of blogs, as I often quote from different blogs and things. So I read from a lot of different areas. Not every day. I'm constantly keeping my sort of feelers out for signals now. I know what to call it, signals. That The Guardian would post this just made me sit up and go, okay, this has reached the mainstream. The newspapers are really paying attention to this. And we know that papers like Bloomberg and media companies that focus more on tech and sport as well and financial news have been using AI writers for a while. But that The Guardian did this is, is crazy to me. Anyway, so the article was had an assignment to write an essay convincing us that artificial intelligence basically comes in peace. So it was a really lowball topic. They could have made it a lot more frightening. You should definitely read the article. But the interesting thing is not the article, because I think we all know now that an AI machine learning system can generate lots of words. I don't think that is the issue at this point. The interesting thing was the methodology they followed to actually create a finished publishable work. And as I recorded this, as I got up this morning ready to record this, and there was a new article on The Guardian about their methodology. So there was a tiny bit at the bottom of the original article on the methodology, but they've just released this whole post. And this is the post I think you should go and read, links in the show notes. And this is called How to Edit Writing by a Robot, a Step-by-Step Guide. Basically, the methodology, the prompts were written by The Guardian and fed to GPT-3 by a computer science undergrad at UC Berkeley or Berkeley I think you say in America we (laughs) I think you call it Berkeley but we would pronounce it Berkeley here in the UK but the point is that you can't just uh, use GPT-3 it's only available to programmers it's in beta and because this guy had access in fact this was the guy who got a GPT-3 article to the top of Hacker News The title was Feeling Unproductive, Maybe You Should Stop Overthinking. It was like a productivity listicle piece (laughs) that got to number one spot on Hacker News to demonstrate that GPT-3 could fool people into believing it was written by a human. So this, uh, this graduate student, oh sorry, undergraduate student, so that'll tell you how old he is, was the one to feed this to the system. So basically, GPT-3 produced eight different outputs or essays. So they were long enough that The Guardian called them essays. Each was unique, interesting and advanced a different argument. So basically, and I've seen how fast this runs and you can test out how fast some of these AIs run by, you can use deepl.com to translate a whole book in 
a few seconds. You can use Talk to Transformer. Used to be there, but it's gone somewhere else. But you can follow Talk to Transformer. You can try these generative tools. They're incredibly fast. So GPT-3 produced eight different outputs or essays. Some of the outputs were short, clear and well-written. Others were excessively long, rambling and strange. (laughs) Some had conspiracy theories, others had random spam or even things like emails in the middle of them. Typically, we saw long sections of clean linear writing, which could be printed with minimal editing, followed by long sections of gibberish and smart sounding word salad. (laughs) Now, this still makes me laugh because we have all read books or essays or articles that are generic, smart-sounding word salads. Let's face it, that is not a GPT-3. This is a human thing too. So the article continues, The Guardian could have run one of the essays in entirety. However, we chose to pick the best parts of each in order to capture the different styles. Editing GPT-3's op-ed was no different to editing a human op-ed. We cut lines and paragraphs and rearranged the order of them in some places. Overall, it took less time to edit than many human op-eds. Very interesting. So many people, and I've been having, there have been a lot of responses to this and they're like, oh, it's still terrible and it's obviously done by a human because the human edited it. But as writers, I think we can agree that The drafting process, everyone has some form of drafting process, either a circling approach if you end up with one finished draft or often a messy first draft and then multiple edits. We all edit. Then we, most of us will use a professional editor. Most of us will use a proofreader. If you submit, if you're a journalist um, and you submit an article, they're going to edit it. And as they said here, this took less time to edit than many human op-eds. So anyone who criticises the methodology of editing, I think think that's wrong because we edit. So I don't think that's a valid criticism as such. The point is, and as I've said many times, we're talking about AI as a tool, as a creative tool we can use potentially to help us. So carrying on. So when I was thinking about this, GPT-3 is actually a massive autocomplete. So you feed it a prompt and it will generate paragraphs and then say, so say you put in a, put a line in, well, let's say three lines, put in three lines from your latest work and it will generate a whole load of stuff off that. Then you could take the bottom line of what it generated, stick it in and it will generate a whole load more. Now, when I was thinking, because this week I've been writing a lot, I've been doing two, two to 3,000 words a day on Tree of Life and I actually use an autocomplete kind of method if you think about how we write. So I'll be writing Morgan walked in the door. So then you start auto-completing what comes next. You start writing what comes next. What has she walked into? What, what does the room look like? Or what does the setting look like? Who else is there? What do they say? So this is really interesting because I was like, actually, it's <laughs> pretty similar. The prompt for me is the next sentence that I write. So that's interesting. I also read a few other articles about this. So an article by Robin Sloan, who actually has written several books. So he is an author. He describes himself as tech adjacent. And I think I might steal that term because that is exactly how I feel. I'm not a programmer, but I'm definitely tech adjacent. But he wrote an article called Writing with the Machine. Again, links in the show notes. And he says, the world doesn't need any more dead-eyed robotext, which I totally agree with. There's so much of it that isn't even written by robots. (laughs) Again, productivity tips, for example. And I've written enough. I have a book on productivity, to be fair. (laughs) 
people want that stuff. But at this point, how much of it is original? The animating ideas here are augmentation, partnership, call and response. The goal is not to make writing easier, it's to make it harder. The goal is not to make the resulting text better, it's to make it different, weirder, with effects maybe not available by other means. It's almost, perhaps, like co-writing, getting input from something like an amalgamated other brain that you can spin off into other things. And I really like that idea. So I've co-written, probably the best example of co-writing a book was Risen Gods, which is by me, J.F. Penn and Jay Thorne. And so I had an idea based when I, I lived in New Zealand for seven years. It's a volcanic country. And there was a back in, I want to say maybe 2009-ish, I can't remember the exact date, but there was a big tsunami, uh, earthquake offshore and tsunami that uh, kind of crippled the city of Christchurch. And it's something that sticks in my head in a big way. I wasn't living in New Zealand at that point. I was in Australia, but I remember it. And so Jay and I wrote a novel based on that, which opens in Christchurch during the tsunami and then is about uh, two people who get separated and find themselves again, but they have to cross the whole of New Zealand and fight gods and demons and stuff along the way. So it's a fantasy. But the point is that I had the the original idea. Jay has never been to New Zealand and we co-wrote that book truly in that he came up with ideas that I didn't have in my brain. I came up with things he didn't have in his brain. We truly co-wrote something. And when you have a very different brain co-writing with you, then you do come up with things that you wouldn't have thought of. So I'm very interested in GPT-3 as this kind of idea. And there's another article I read, Matt Webb on Interconnected says, GPT-3 is an idea machine capable of original creative ideas. It feels like having a creative sparring partner. It doesn't feel like talking to a human. It feels mechanical and under my control like a tool. And he notes the inventions that are that come up in the completed text that he generated that included things that didn't exist, new products, <laughs> things that don't exist on the web. His conclusions are that using GPT-3 is work. It is not one-shot automation like spell check or autocomplete. It's interactive, investigative. The human user interviews GPT-3. And then this is the interesting thing. There will be people who become experts at dousing. So for dousing, it's when you use that kind of wooden rod to find water using some kind of sensitivity. This is a great term, dousing the AI. Just as there are people who are great at searching using Google or finding information in research libraries, the skill involved will be similar to being a good improv partner. This is exactly what I feel is, and I haven't even used it, but this is how I feel I want to use it. He also says GPT-3 is capable of novel ideas, but it takes a human to identify the good ones. It is not a replacement for creative imagination. It feels like a brainstorming workshop or talking something through with a colleague or an editor. So those things I hope will make you feel interested in this. I hope you already are interested. If you're not, you're probably not listening anymore. <laughs> But there are a few takeaways that I think good and bad from this. So first of all, on the difficult side, clearly this is a content tsunami that is approaching. If you think there are way too many books, and I say 
not the books we write, but books by spammers, plagiarised, copy and pasted articles from the internet put into what some might call a book, but it's not a book, it's just some Kindle document. And this is, again, very, uh, David Gochran's written a post on Kindle Unlimited is a, I can't remember his title, but it's about scammers and KU. And I'm not saying that you are one if you're in KU, but the, the content there is not policed enough, let's face it. There is a lot of plagiarised material if you look at universities and schools, they have these plagiarism checkers for essays. But equally, GPT-3 generates things that is original, but it could still be... In fact, I said to Jonathan when we were out walking, I said, oh, goodness, imagine if you did a philosophy essay. I reckon this would generate something that would pass as philosophy because talk about that word salad. <laughs> But the point is, there are so many listicles, repetitive blog posts, pointless books with no real human uh, input. And think how much more can be generated with these AI tools. And so my answer to this is, as ever, double down on being human. Distinguish yourself from the machine by writing with real human opinions, thoughts, emotions, your take on the topic. So when you write a book on productivity, so let's take my productivity book. Yeah, there are tons of tips on productivity. But if you read my book on productivity, it contains my experiences and my thoughts on my own situation. That's what distinguishes it, not the t- so let's take one of my big tips is time block. So block out time to write and then use that time to write. And that's not original. That's not an original thought. But what is original are my thoughts around how I came to use that and why it helped me. So double down on being human. Distinguish yourself from the machine. Also, be aware that this is going on. So it's really important to know about such tools like deep fakes, fake news, propaganda, these types of AIs, bots. We should all be aware that tools can be used to generate bad things as well as interesting things. And this is covered in more detail. So I've got so many books to read at the moment, but this one is called Tools and Weapons, The Promise and Peril of the Digital Age. And Tools and Weapons is exactly where we sit on this idea. And the internet is this, it is a tool and it is a weapon. And something like the news media is a tool and a weapon. And that's actually why I read so widely across different media from different perspectives on the political scale, because I feel like everyone has their angle. And the only way for me to come up with some kind of opinion of my own is to read from different angles and synthesize that with my own thought. Uh, and that takes time, obviously. Thank you to my patrons for enabling me to have time to think. <laughs> yes, be aware this is going on. Also, thinking about the issues, and I know I keep jumping on this soapbox, but who owns the copyright to the article that GPT-3 generated? There is no copyright law that covers AI-generated work in English, certainly. Is it owned by OpenAI? who own GPT-3? Is it the student who did the queries? Is it the Guardian editor who put it together? And I would have to say it can't be the Guardian editor because if it's an editor, then our editors may have uh, rights over our work. So it, it can't be the editor. Is it OpenAI? Or is there literally no copyright law 
on it. So I was even thinking of um, the Guardian have a way that you can ask to reuse material. And I was thinking I could ask to reuse that article to see what they say, because they'll probably say it's our copyright. And then I was thinking, because I can't seem to get an answer on this from anyone. If you are a copyright lawyer... (laughs) Let me know what you think. (laughs) But the other thing is the Guardian tried to make this emotional as they do. They're pretty anti-technology. The Guardian says, are you scared yet, human, was there in their headline. And no, I'm not scared and I don't think you should be. And I'm not particularly concerned with GPT replacing writers. Even if you are writing blog posts, content marketing for companies, for example, freelance writing, I'm not concerned yet with GPT-3. However, (laughs) I do think we'll be using this as a tool probably within 18 months. I'm going to say 18 months. So by 2022, I would hope that I can use GPT-3 with AI as a service, which is becoming a thing. So GPT-3 does has released their pricing, but it's way beyond anything we can do right now. But obviously, big companies are going to go down that route. What I do think is remember that GPT-2 came out in February 2019. GPT-3 took 15 months later, and it's 100 times as powerful. Given that technology speeds up and new forms of cheaper computation are being invented all the time, and there have been some really interesting developments in quantum computing by Google, which is fascinating. So I would expect that we'll have GPT-6, GPT-10 by in the next five years, and... Who knows how what GPT-10 would do, for example. So what I hope is for some kind of way, as I've talked about before, that we can build a our own mini GPTs of our own work, which will help us create more, do things like that, license our work to other people's GPTs, that type of thing. And I am thinking a lot about this as ever. I am going to do another big futurist thing at some point but this was too big to mess out is the fact as I said that the Guardian's doing it will it is pretty much that it's mainstream it's a bit like my mum got a Kindle about six years after I did and when my mum got a Kindle I was like okay I can safely say that ebooks have gone mainstream now (laughs) so yes interesting times And as ever, I'd love to know what you think about this. You can uh, leave a comment on the show notes. You can email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. You can tweet me at thecreativepen with a double N. I particularly am interested in your comments. If you have read these articles, all the ones I'm going to link to in the show notes, and you have an opinion that is related to actually reading everything, I do sometimes get just angry emails that say, why do you talk about these things? (laughs) So yeah, clearly those people have stopped listening anyway. But yes, so please let me know what you think. And uh, yeah, fascinating times. So I know this is a bit of a long intro this week, but we have some interesting stuff going on. My personal update, I'm still working away at Tree of Life. And it's so funny because I seem to spend half my time doing tech and futuristy things. And then the other half of my time, well, in fact, a lot more than half of my time at the moment, I'm writing my first draft of Tree of Life. And I'm sinking deep into historical and religious research from hundreds, sometimes thousands of years ago. I've even dug out my Bible and reading the book of Genesis. And I'm following the path 
separately, of Portuguese Jews after the expulsion to Kingston, Jamaica. I've been writing about Jews in Jamaica and the Caribbean and also Recife in Brazil and the mountains of northwestern Iran. I've been reading some really interesting books and uh, as ever I always put all my research into the back of my novels. Fun times! I'm just having a good time with Tree of Life. I'm over halfway. I know what's happening, I just need to finish it. So plans are to finish the draft in the next two weeks before a little bit of a rest and then editing. I also posted my lessons learned from nine years as a full-time author entrepreneur this week. I know I feel like I've done a lot of these posts this year, episode 500 and all this, but I I always do these lessons, so I needed to do it. And you can see all my lessons at thecreativepen.com forward slash timeline, which basically goes back over 14 years of my writer's journey. So the only, I wanted to just mention what they are. You can go and read it. I'll link in the show notes or just go to the blog. Number one, The global, digital, scalable, location-independent business model is incredibly resilient, especially in pandemic times. And uh, as hopefully you all know, I've defined global, digital, scalable and location-independent in the blog post, if you don't know what they are. And this business model has always been good to me, but this year it has really demonstrated its value. I have had no disruption (laughs) to the business because there's nothing to disrupt. And if anything, people have bought more books and courses online. But the rest of the world has now discovered this way of working, so inevitably there will be changes ahead. The online space is busier than ever, but having worked this way successfully for over a decade, I intend to continue to find better ways to reach new readers globally and to add more digital streams of income to my business. So my question posed is how can you make your author business more global, digital, scalable and location independent? if that's what you want. And then I just also reflected on the fact that goals change over time and that's okay. And I talked a lot more about this in episode 500 with Jonathan going back to work in the pharmaceutical industry and that the company now is really just me and the wonderful freelancers I work with, Alexandra, primarily my virtual assistant, wonderful virtual assistant, Jane, my designer and everyone I work with. And so I'm definitely, I still have big plans, obviously, as discussed in the seven figure author episode with Emily Kimmelman last week. But I am really thinking about what I want to do now. Jonathan's back into his career. Yeah, and I say it's, I often talk about the author journey, but it's also a life journey and our goals change as individuals and also as partnerships and families. And I'm still figuring out how things are going to work, but I'm certainly excited about the next step. So my question there is, how have your goals changed over time, both for you individually, but also in your partnership or your family or however that works as a bigger group? So thank you for your emails and tweets and comments this week. Hilariously, a whole load of you messaged me and emailed and said, you thought I was mad when I said I was contented. Uh, Sarah Madison or Sarah Madison says, thought you were crazy last week to say you were contented. I've been climbing the walls. (laughs) Was so interesting to hear you say this week that we've become accustomed to living small and surviving rather than living. No more. It was refreshing to get back into the mindset of focusing on mindset again. It's about allowing ourselves to start thinking, dreaming, living big again. That is fantastic. Joe Lobato said, I loved this episode with Emily. Emily is honest about the work it takes to get to be a high earning author. It's insightful and inspiring. Also, amen to smashing out of comfort zones. 
A couple more. Aina or Aina from Norway says, you asked what I'm doing to expand my comfort zone. I'm a full-time journalist and writer. During the beginning of the pandemic, I had so much work, I ended up getting a really bad case of carpal tunnel syndrome. Oh, nasty. So now I'm learning to write by dictation. I've used your books and segments on the topic for inspiration. I am so far outside of my comfort zone, but it is getting better day by day. In the end, I believe it will be a very good tool for me. And that is a really good point. And as I've said many times, dictation is a really good tool, especially if you're having health issues. I'm not dictating. I did dictate some notes in the early part of Tree of Life, but I'm just typing at this point. I'd like to get back to dictation at some point. And Dharma said... Uh, You asked what listeners are doing to expand and move out of their comfort zone. I've been ramping up my Photoshop and photo manipulation skills by watching videos uh, on YouTube. I'm hoping to eventually be able to design my own covers. And that is a great skill and one Michael Brent talked about in episode 503 when he talked about rebooting his career. So um, that is super useful. And then finally, thanks to Tracy Devlin, who sent me a picture. She said, hiking along the Catawba Catawba Greenway Trail in Western North Carolina, I came across this small family cemetery tucked on a steep hill, which just looked lovely. So thank you so much. And (laughs) this does make me laugh as well, because clearly, and I was saying to Jonathan, I wish I could just settle in one area, but I just can't. I really am this sort of multi-passionate, multi-interested person. So I am interested in cemeteries and history and the past, deep past and religion and spirituality and all these things. And then I'm also super interested in AI and tech. (laughs) And I think that's fine. (laughs) And I don't even want to write sci-fi. That's not what I want to do. Not the moment. I like keeping my writing in a different sphere, I think. Who knows? I'm not going to hem myself in. You can tweet me at The Creative Pen, leave a comment on the show, email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. Let me know what you think. Send a picture from where you're listening in from. So today's show is sponsored by Drafted Digital. I'll play a word from Kevin Tomlinson in a moment. So I use Drafted Digital to reach Nook as well as many library services. Drafted Digital get you into libraries, as we'll talk about in the show today. And did you know that you can get most of my ebooks and audiobooks on your library app, both fiction and fiction, non-fiction? <laughs> Just check your library app or ask your librarian to order them in. You'll get them for free and I get paid. Woohoo! Talking of getting paid, this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show and thinking about things is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thanks to everyone who is joining the Patreon and continuing coming back. Lots of people coming back. Thank you so much. I know why people cut back early and very grateful that you can come back again. And thanks to new and returning patrons this week, including Steve Brock, Captain Glenn Martinez, Alexa Rivers, Pam Harvey, Anthony Craig or Craig, Ashland Pym, Tammy Brothers, Claire Vanderpolder, Douglas Clegg, and John Rindfleisch the Ninth, which is a fantastic name. I'm gonna have to put you in a book, John. <laughs> so I really do and that was a joke. It's okay, I won't. I really do appreciate your support on Patreon. It demonstrates you find the show useful and want it to continue. 
And remember, you can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month and you'll get the extra Q&A audio, which I'll record probably in the next week or so. Plus, I've got a special this week for patrons, only 50% off my courses, all my courses, 50% off for September 2020. So if you join now, you will get the 50% discount. So if you do join up, just make sure you check the protected patron area and you will find that discount code valid for September 2020. So if you want any of my courses, including your author business plan, which continues to be super popular, then just join the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the creative pen. Here's a word from Drafted Digital, and then we'll be into the interview. Hey, this is Kevin Thompson with Drafted Digital, and we love libraries. Everyone at Drafted Digital first discovered a love for reading at their local library, and chances are you did too. That's why we've put a big focus on building up library distribution for DDD authors. With a catalog of library distributors that reaches thousands of public, academic, and business libraries all over the planet. Overdrive, Biblioteca, Baker & Taylor, Hoopla. We just keep adding new ways for you to reach library patrons everywhere. And we're including new ways to make some money with innovations such as cost per checkout, a royalty structure that lets libraries check out as many copies of your books as they need, helping you reach eager patrons and get paid as you go. Find out more about how draft digital works with libraries and you at drafttodigital.com slash library dash pricing. Erin Wright is the USA Today best-selling author of 14 romance novels and also set up the Wide for the Win Facebook group, the largest gathering of authors who publish wide. So welcome, Erin. Hi, good to be here. Oh, I'm very excited to talk to you today. Now, but let's start with your writing. So tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing. Yeah, sure. So I was actually born a military brat. My dad was in the Marine Corps for 20 years. And then when he retired, we moved to this tiny town of 300 people in the middle of nowhere, Idaho. (laughs) And I promptly hated it with all of my being. I was in junior high at that point and there were 15 other kids in my grade. Yeah, 15 kids total in my grade. And all of them had been together since kindergarten and I was the outsider and I was miserable. Anyway, so I ended up doing, obviously, life goes on and I ended up in the library world for seven years, including 18 months as the library director. And then I started going, teaching part-time, going to school full-time and trying to make ends meet by doing side hustles. Like I would proofread for authors or do PA work, that sort of thing. Mm. And I got this really horrific manuscript one day. The author had bought it from a ghostwriter and wanted me to just clean it up a bit. (laughs) (laughs) I tried, but I was like, how about if I just rewrite this from the ground up? Oh, and uh, how about if I just write books two and three also? And so I just like, I ran, I took this and ran with it. It was only supposed to be a standalone, but I ended up making it a trilogy for the guy. And so he was begging me to continue writing stories for him after the trilogy was done. But my husband, he's like, you are being an idiot. You're spending lots of money to go to school so you can teach full time and make very little money as a teacher. You're also writing smashing good books for someone else so they can make lots of money from your hard work. Why don't you quit teaching, quit school, quit ghostwriting and write for yourself? 
And I have to say, my husband and I are are, uh, both pretty blunt people. And so that's one of the reasons why we get along. And I was like, all right, fine. You're right. (laughs) So I started writing under my own name, um, Accounting for Love in the fall of 2016. And then I went full-time as an author, no more side hustles, no more being a PA or proofreading or whatever in the summer of 18. So I'm the primary breadwinner of my family, and this is how I make my money, by writing Western romance. I don't have another revenue stream or anything else. And ironically enough, I am actually back in that tiny podunk town in the middle of nowhere, Idaho. My husband and I were traveling around the U.S. in in an RV and exploring, and then the pandemic hit, and we settled down at my parents' farm in Idaho. And we're hanging out here, and my parents are religious, and they actually have decided to go on a mission, and then we'll be gone for 18 months and have asked us to watch the farm while they're gone. So I will actually be here until April of 2022. Not that I'm counting or anything, but but the good news is that as an adult, I don't hate it here nearly as much as I did as a kid. Oh, you've it's got the got internet. Fast. Yeah, you've got the internet, yeah. so you can be out in the world. But I love that your husband encouraged you like that and could see the business potential of writing. I have a very supportive husband, but back in 2008, when I was looking at this, it was not really a viable it still wasn't very viable and but things have obviously changed so really that's just so fantastic and it's fascinating that you've done it this way and so quickly but we I wanted us to to focus on publishing wide today so let's start um, by why don't you define what is publishing wide anyway and why do you care so much about it sure so this is actually the debate in the author community most times when someone says I am wide, they mean in reference to their eBooks. So there's really three main formats that you can have your books in print, eBook, audiobook. And so when you say I'm wide, you're usually, <laughs> and if you're not, you're going to be confusing the other person you're talking to. You're usually referring to the eBook portion of that. And the reason why that's such a big deal is because Amazon has this incentive for you to be exclusive to them specifically in the ebook realm. And so if you are exclusive to Amazon with your ebooks, then you're in a program called Kindle Unlimited and you get page reads and you get extra um, visibility and all these or other sorts of things. One thing that is asked, I would say every day probably, is can I be exclusive with my ebooks but be wide with my paperbacks and my audiobooks? And the answer is yes. The ebook program that Amazon runs, it only Kindle Unlimited only affects ebooks. It does not affect paperbacks or print or paperbacks or audiobook, excuse me. But so to be wide means to be published on more than one storefront. So you're covering a wide variety of storefronts, right? Makes sense. So um, the big ones are Amazon, Kobo, Apple, Barnes & Noble. But there are lots of other smaller storefronts. There's re- other reader subscription programs out there. Everybody knows about Kindle Unlimited, but there's also Scribd. And I know there's several other reading programs out there that are just escaping my brain at the moment. Oh, Kobo Plus just started up um, in Canada now. And so uh, there's a lot more to the world than just Amazon. And there are a lot of readers outside of Amazon. So I personally really 
care about being wide because I monopolies make me nervous <laughs> and I feel like if everybody's on Amazon that pretty much makes it a monopoly and only on Amazon so there's definitely the monopoly thing there's also the library part for me like I said I was in the library world for seven years and so having my books available in libraries is something that I genuinely care about a lot and if you are in Kindle Unlimited an exclusive to Amazon, you cannot distribute your ebooks anywhere else. You can't even give it for give it away for free from your own website. You cannot give they cannot be bought by libraries, they cannot be purchased, borrowed, bought, read for free in any way, shape, or form except for through Amazon, period, end of story. And I just really don't like being told what to do. <laughs> I love that. And for me, I also come back to in the word independent, uh, the independent author. And I had put this in the group the other day when you were talking about what to call people in, in the group. Uh, and to me, if you only have, like you said, you're the main breadwinner for your family. If your only income was coming from one company, then potentially that is a, a risk and you're not independent. It could have it could just be like having a day job and then getting laid off in, in the pandemic, which is obviously happening to a lot of people right now and, and is a, a difficult time. So to me, it's also that protection against if one thing fails, then you have other things going on. Yeah. And that's actually one of the things that <clears throat> even in the wide world, I am a little bit more unusual is that I actually make more of my income from wide storefronts than I do Amazon. And excuse me, I didn't start out that way. I originally made like 80% of my income from Amazon when I first went wide and then it dropped to 60 and then it dropped to 50. And then I just recalculated it maybe a month or so ago. And it it changes from month to month. But on average, my latest average figure was 42% of my income comes from Amazon and all of the rest of my sales come from wide storefronts and libraries and such. So for me, putting my books into KU would literally be career suicide. I would be cutting out 60% of my income and I just don't have any desire to do that. (laughs) Uh, And then there's also the fact that I actually don't buy eBooks from Amazon. That's my own thing. I refuse to buy eBooks from Amazon. Um, I prefer Kobo, but I'll buy from Apple or Barnes and Noble or Google play Eden books, but I don't buy from Amazon. So if the book is only available on Amazon, I just don't buy it. And I know that there are a lot of people out there who are like me, and I want to reach all the readers who would potentially want to read my books. And that means going where they're at, not just where it's most, where it's easiest for me, because just publishing to one storefront, that's easier than publishing Mm, 15 or whatever. But yeah. No, I like that. And also, and we're not saying don't publish on Amazon. We're saying, and just to be clear, people who may not have done this before, it's just a checkbox that you can basically tick. And if you tick the checkbox, then you can't publish anywhere else. But you can still publish on Amazon, even when you publish everywhere else. It's just, yeah, that's important to know. So and you have your books on Amazon. It's just that 
your you also have them elsewhere i hear you on the libraries i i was because you came in 2016 into this uh movement as such uh, we did not have that for many years that was impossible for us and i think hoopla is one of the apps that you you mentioned some apps so hoopla i think you can get ebooks and audiobooks through yeah. hoopla is that correct yeah, so that's a library app, Hoopla, uh, Overdrive, there's Biblioteca, Biblio, there's a bunch of different library programs out there. Overdrive is the largest, but that doesn't necessarily, oh, there's Baker and Taylor, Access 360. Anyway, it's, what's a good example? Uh, every library can choose which vendor they want to buy their ebooks and audiobooks from. And some vendors or some libraries, excuse me, may choose multiple vendors if they have enough of a budget. And so it, it isn't just saying I, there's a box out there somewhere that I checkmark libraries and all of my books go to all of the libraries in the world. There are different companies that will get you to different libraries. So you do want to make sure that you're reaching all of the different libraries by going through different venues, D2D, Smashwords, Publish Drive, Streetlib are your four main distributors and they will all get you onto different platforms. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> um, the majority of them you can get through two. You can get through the important ones just by picking two of those distributors. But, but yeah, there isn't one place you cannot pick just one distributor and get to every single platform on the planet. There isn't a single distributor that does that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think this is important. And if people, I I think that wide is a mindset really. Mm -hmm. And it's believing that the world, and I have obviously since there wasn't uh, exclusivity when I started publishing, but what there was, you were not allowed to publish unless you were American. That actually was in place for the first few years. I could go through yeah, I know. I could go through Smashwords to get into the Kindle store, but it was only for Americans for the first, I think, a, a year or two during the early um, phase. And then they started branching out. But the truth is, it's still not available to every author in the world. A lot of authors can't get paid in their local currencies. It's Some readers obviously can't access Amazon. So this is the other thing. It's acknowledging that the world is much bigger. And you, everyone listening knows I love Americans but I do find that sometimes <laughs> people forget that there's a whole big world out there. What? There's nothing beyond the borders of America. I refuse <laughs> to believe it. <laughs> exactly. But even in America, like you're saying, there are readers like yourself who are like, yeah, I buy on a different platform or I buy in a different format. And so to serve a wide audience, it's having this mindset. So how do people make that switch if they want to? Like, Because you said it didn't start that way in terms of your income wide. And there is a dip, isn't there? If people move from exclusive to wide, there can really be a dip in income. So what's your advice for people who feel like they might want to switch? Yeah, so I, when I first started publishing, I published in KU because everybody around me who I knew as an author was in KU, literally 100%. And so the idea of going wide was like one of those weird things that people talked about, but it was like, that isn't, that isn't actually a real viable career option. And but I didn't last very long in KU. <laughs> I really don't like being 
uh, locked down to one platform and I started to discover things. I was so new back then. I didn't know that I couldn't get my books into libraries and I didn't know all these other, I was like, and, and so I thought, screw this, I'm going wide. And I actually flip-flopped a little bit, something I tell people never to do, but I did. And it wasn't until the, what, the spring of 2017, I believe, where something like that. Anyway, where I stayed and I, I stuck being wide. Uh, In the Wide for the Wind group, obviously my transferring to wide has happened a long time ago. And I only had a couple of books at that point anyway. I was a nobody. (laughs) I was making very little money before. I was making very little money afterwards. Not a big deal. But for people who have built up quite the following on KU, but are wanting to go wide so that all of their income isn't dependent upon one storefront and their page reads can't all be taken away one day, there's a lot of scary things about being exclusive. One of the things to keep in mind is, is that you are starting over. There's this a suggestion out there that I've heard that people say when you're a brand new author, you might as well just go into KU and get some exposure that way. And then you can go wide later. And I find that to be really horrific advice because the KU audience and the wide audience are two very different audiences. And you may get a few people who follow you and start buying your books instead of getting them for free through KU but the majority of them are not going to. And if you start out in KU and then go wide, all you're doing is making yourself have to build up your um, audience twice. It's twice as much work. Why would you want to do that? I relate it to when you were going to college, when you were coming right out of high school, all of your friends are in college, you're in college, everybody's broke. It's all cool. You're sleeping on sofas, you're eating ramen noodle or whatever. But if you decide later in life to go back to college and you have to be broke all over again, that's really difficult because now you have a family and you have a mortgage and you have, you know, three kids that you have to support. And all of a sudden you need to be living this broke college life, (laughs) a college lifestyle. And it, it really doesn't work very well. There's a real struggle there. And so I say that when you are first starting writing, you should just be wide from the beginning. You're not going to be selling anything, but that's okay. You wouldn't be selling anything if you're in KU either. So you might as well just get that part out of the way and stick to being wide the whole time. Barring that, if you're already in KU and you're now wanting to go wide, you definitely have your expectations set correctly. There are a few authors who are able to take their whole catalog wide and make more money wide from the get-go. There are also people who win the lottery. I don't think that should be part of your plan (laughs) of your retirement plan that, well, I'll just win the lottery and that's how I'll pay for all of my books uh, or all of my expenses as an old person. So going wide, just expect that you're going to lose money. You're going to have a lot less visibility on Amazon. You're not only going to lose all of your page reads, but you're probably going to lose sales also because you're not as visible on Amazon as you were before. So if you are one of those people who can do it, I recommend putting aside a bit of savings to give yourself a cushion so that when you go wide, you can not be struggling from day one. Because just like when you went into KU and you weren't making any money in the beginning, when you go wide, you're not going to be making any money in the beginning. You can't expect to be making the same level 
from day one, from month one, from the first month forward, as you were before. And if you do have that expectation, you're going to end up back in KU. So yes. And that is tends to be what happens. I think people don't give it long enough and they don't change their marketing. So we'll come back to marketing in a minute, but I did want to come back on the new author experience. And I have given people that advice before because of how many things you have to learn when you start out as an author, uh, as, a, as an indie author. So at the same time that people are learning about editing and everything that goes into the craft, they're also trying to learn about hiring the right cover designer. They're trying to learn about metadata. They're trying to learn about positioning. They're trying to learn who they are as a writer. They're trying to network. All of these things that they're trying to do. And then when it comes to publishing, it is easier to publish on one store. Now, of course, they don't need to select KDP select, but it, it, if you have, if you go from zero to having to, as I do at this point, I publish on goodness, a lot of stores because as right. new ones have arrived, <laughs> I've added them in. And uh, so I have to, and if I want to change something in my backlist, I have to publish a lot of times. And mm-hmm. so I feel like if someone is starting out brand new, then just being on Amazon with an ebook can be the simplest way to start. But what I tend to say is if you have three books in a series or you have three books under one name, that can be a good start. Why? Because at least you have something that you can do promotions with. So I I just wanted to come back on that one thing because I know some people listening are probably just starting out. Yeah. And I do say though, and it was Adam Croft, I believe who said it, at least he was the one who I heard it from originally of if you were overwhelmed by publishing everywhere, just publish on Amazon. You don't have to be exclusive though. Mm, And so you can publish on Amazon, take a month, feel, get your sea legs under you, be setting up storefront accounts elsewhere and take your time and publish slowly on other storefronts. There isn't a, it isn't a race. It isn't like you get in trouble for being on Kobo, but not Barnes and Noble. (laughs) (laughs) You can can slowly add storefronts as you feel comfortable. The other option is to always, is that you can use a distributor. And so you could use, you know, Amazon and then draft to digital or Amazon and Smashwords or whatever. And so then you're just publishing two places, which is twice as much as one, but it's still not (laughs) unbearable. But I always feel like it's easier if you start out going the direction that you want to end up as opposed to trying to change directions midstream. Oh, it definitely is easier. It's just sometimes after years and years, (laughs) having been doing this for 12 years now, you you often end up changing direction because something else comes along or things change. So just to, I, and I had Adam on the show saying the same thing. So I do think that is uh, a great thing to consider. And the other thing is to say to people is if you are an independent author, you do get to make the choice and you get to change your mind. So that's not a problem either. But I do want to come back to what you said, which you said you make more income wide. So clearly you can do this and some months I do as well. So why don't you tell us, let's start with something like, or are there principles of book marketing wide that are different to exclusivity? Yeah. So I think I got sidetracked previously when you're asking about my wide being a mindset, because there are some major differences when you are wide that, that you really do need to flip a switch in your brain. So for example, I don't give away Kindles as prizes. I give away Nooks or I give away Kobo readers, e-readers. And I let the 
prize winner choose which one they want because Nook only works in the U.S. Kobo is international, but in the U.S. Nook is more popular. So yeah, I let them choose which one, but I don't give away a Kindle. When I'm giving away gift cards, I let the reader choose which storefront they want the gift card for so they can choose Apple, Kobo, Amazon, Google Play, or Barnes & Noble. I don't just give away Amazon gift cards. I don't do promo swaps with KU authors. If I'm cross-promoting with another author, that author is always wide. When I'm linking to storefronts in social media and in my newsletters, I'm linking to all storefronts, not just Amazon. To be with my ARC team, in order to be added to it, you have to review on at least two storefronts. And Goodreads and BookBub are not a storefront. So they have to review on Amazon and Barnes and Noble or Amazon and Google Play. Or heck, they can order, they can review on Kobo and Apple. I don't care. But they have to do two. It's free to set up a, a review uh, or set up an account on all of the other storefronts. It's only Amazon that has the $50 minimum spend requirement. Mm. All the other storefronts don't have that. And so when all the, when readers say, well, I don't review anywhere else, I'm like, mm, you can set up an account and you can review. I promise you it's possible. You need an email address and a password. <laughs> Go forth and do it. So that's one of the requirements I have just to be on my ARC team. So when I, I guess what I do is when I'm putting together anything for my readers, I'm looking at it from wanting to include all of them. Because if I say to my readers, here's a $25 Amazon gift card, let's have a prize drawing for it. Then I'm telling my readers from all the other storefronts, you don't matter. Mm. And I'm not okay with doing that. When I, if I were to cross promo, with somebody who's only in KU, I'd be telling my wide readers, you don't matter. I'm not providing a book to you that is wide. I'm providing a book to you that is only on Amazon. And so it really is just thinking about all storefronts, not as one being more important than another, but as all of them being equally important. And we are so used to giving Amazon so much deference and so much emphasis that just the idea of caring about all of the storefronts equally is a little bit radical. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, totally radical. But then what about moving the needle on actual book sales? So you've talked there about obviously the readers, but what kind of uh, advertising are you doing or do you use perma-free? What are some of the things that work well when wide? Yeah, so I have several different stool uh, legs for my stool that help prop up my sales. I do have two permafrees. I have two series right now that I am able to put a permafree at the beginning. And so I have two book ones that I can advertise. I do paid newsletters, free booksy, fussy librarian. My husband runs a company called Full Hearts Romance, so I use him. Places like that, I advertise my permafrees on. I only ever advertise permafreeze. I don't run 99 cent sales very often. I think I've done like two, maybe three my whole career. Mm-hmm. And I was underwhelmed by it because the royalties are just so small. You have to sell so many more copies that it's really difficult to make money with the 99 cent uh, price point. And yet there's still a price associated with it. And so there's still that hesitation from people of, do I actually want to buy it or not? 
So you have that hesitation and you're not making very much money. It seems like the worst of all worlds to me. So I much prefer to do permafreeze because there isn't that hesitation there. And my ROI comes through, comes from the south route to the rest of my series. And I get book bums on a fairly regular basis. Obviously, that's super useful. I used to release fairly often, maybe once every two or three months. And then I hit a burnout period and it will be 13 months between my last book and my next book, which I don't recommend, but faster releases than every 13 months is <laughs> <laughs> recommended. I use long pre-orders to gather up lots of pre-orders for my books. So at the end of, let's just do it easy. At the end of book one, book two pre-order link will always be there. I put up the next book in the series as a pre-order before I release the the current book in the series so that I can put a link in the back. Mm. Ranking really doesn't matter to a white author. We have a saying in the wide win group, uh, bank over rank. And, And that just means like, we don't really care about ranking. We care about how much money we're actually making. And I love so, that. I love that. I just yeah. love it. Brilliant. <laughs> we should get a t-shirt. <laughs> yes. Yes. I have this dream that we're going to have a wide conference and that is going to be on our t-shirts. So that's my dream. We'll see. <laughs> Someday. That is, that's great. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Sorry. Carry on. More tips. What about box sets? I find that I sell more box sets like Kobo. You can get quite good promos on box sets, for example. Yeah. There are some people who say don't publish box sets because it steals your thunder or whatever from your individual books. I have box sets. They stay up year round. And I calculated it within the last couple of weeks and I made $600 from box sets each month over the past six months. That's across all storefronts combined together. And it's okay, that's $600. That's, that's nice. But it's $3,600 in the last six months that I've made from box sets. And I don't think that's something to, to turn down. I personally, when I put a new box set together, I email my readers and I say, hey, look, there's this new box set that's available. If you buy the books, you save X percentage over buying the books individually. This allows me to still make some income from these books and it allows you to get a good book, a good deal on those books. If you've been holding off buying my books for whatever reason, go ahead and check out this box set. And I got a huge spike in my box set sales when I did that. My box sets are four books long, each one of them, and they're all $9.99 U.S., I've done a couple of the Kobo promos. I'll probably do some more in the future, but I don't do them regularly. I feel like if I do them too often, then I'll just keep reaching the same readers over and over again. So I kind of like to space that out. Mm. Um, But I see box sets as a way to offer discounts to my readers while still getting a decent, healthy royalty rate from it. And so it's a win-win in my world. So yeah. yeah, no, me too. I think the readers for box sets are completely different. Like me as a reader, personally, I do not want a box set. I do not shop for box sets. I'm not interested. I like individual books. And there are some people who you'll see it in the all in on, on Amazon. Anyway, you'll see that also bots are box are other box sets, because I think people people who like binge reading that much or do that. But the other thing I just want to say to people, like I sell a nine book box set direct 
just from mm. PayHip, which is another benefit of being wide. You can sell from your own website. And that's $20 and it sells quite often. And that's 20 bucks for per sale, which is one of the biggest sales you can get for an ebook, really. And again, you can't do that within the Amazon ecosystem because it's too expensive for the 70%. You can do these bigger ones for bigger chunks of money. And so I think that's good. All right. So we've covered perma-free pre-orders, box sets, and you've talked a bit about BookBub and some other newsletters. Anything else you do for these wide marketing, even something like libraries, people don't know how to reach people. That's actually an excellent question. I, as a former librarian, I don't really know how to reach libraries <laughs> other than to <laughs> available there. So I wish I could tell you there's some like super secret thing that, that you just hadn't heard about yet. But honestly, if there is, I don't know about it. The other thing I do that I haven't mentioned yet is multi-author box sets. And it might have even been you. It was somebody I was listening to several years ago. So that's why I can't remember. But if it sounds familiar, you can be like, yeah, I totally, I own that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, if you are newer, if you are a newer author and you don't have a lot of sales and you don't have a, a big following, a big fan base, one of the big, one of the best things that you can do for your career is to put together a multi-author box set and say to other authors in your genre, I'm willing to do all the work for this. I will provide the cover. I will do all of the, the compiling of the ebook. I will do all the marketing other than each person needs to market to their own newsletter. But if you're willing to do all of that for someone else, and all they have to do is send you their ebook and send it out to their newsletter one time, you're going to get a lot of authors who say yes. And so you will be able to cross promote using a, a multi-author box set, cross promote with authors who are bigger than you in your genre and get more exposure for your catalog than you would ever be able to otherwise. And the costs are, are pretty minimal. You, it's mostly time of reaching out to authors, um, pitching the idea to them, putting the box set together, publishing it, you can publish free. That's the easiest because then you don't have to split royalties. Publish Drive there for a while had a free program that you could publish. All the authors could publish through Publish Drive and split the royalties and there was no extra charge other than the normal 10%. It now costs money for that. But D2D is putting something together right now that will allow you to do multi-author box sets and split royalties and it will be free other than the 10% royalties. You can okay. also do that, just to say, you can do that on Bundle Rabbit. You've been able to do that for a while now. So bundlerabbit.com, I've had Chuck on here and a lot of people doing that through Bundle Rabbit. So that is available. Yeah, so that's true. I actually haven't done Bundle Rabbit, but I've heard a lot about it and I keep thinking, I've got in the back of my mind that I need to, to do more work on that and learn more. But yeah, that's actually been one of the things that I've done personally to grow my career is I reached out to New York Times bestselling authors in the Western romance genre and said, hey, here's the book cover. You can see it. You can see it's gorgeous. Here's, here are the other people who have already agreed to be in this promo. Will you be in this promo also? Or in this box set, excuse me. And so I was able to work with people who are like way above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll do that because it's easy for me to do. And so everybody wins in that situation. So people sometimes don't want to approach other authors because they don't want to bug them. 
And I just say, you know what, the worst they can do is not respond or they can respond and say, I'm not interested. I've approached a lot of authors at this point. I've never had anybody tell me to go screw myself. (laughs) (laughs) They're just not going to, right? They're just going to ignore you. And that's okay. It's all right. They're, they're got their own life going on. It don't take it personally and don't let that back. Yeah, no, that's that. I think that's really interesting. It, I've done a few, but I've never organized them. And I, yeah, I think, as you say, it's something that you can offer uh, other people in terms of help. But in terms of meeting other people and making online friends and finding like minded people, let's talk about Wide for the Win on Facebook. You emailed me, I don't know how I'd missed this, but you emailed me and said, Hey, just letting you know there's this group, and I'm just not really a Facebook person. And I was like, This is great. And you have all the vendors in there, you have people who are wide share. I have learned more wide tips in this group in the last month that I've been in there than I have (laughs) for years because basically I've been doing this for so long it's hard to find tips on wide I think this is the thing Mm -hmm. there's so many tips on Amazon and so many books on it and everything but what you've got there in the Facebook group is incredible so tell people what can they expect in wide for the win yeah I my co-moderator, Susan O'Connell, and she's also a Western romance author who I met when I approached to join me in a multi-author box set. So here you go. And we are now super close friends. Hi, Susie. Anyway, <laughs> um, so we moderate this group together. We we were talking about how there's this real need for a place for wide authors to talk. Because I had been part of a really large indie group on Facebook, and everybody knows this group. And somebody posted in the group and said, I'm a wide author. I would like to know XYZ. I don't remember what her question was. And so I was in there, and I'm me being me, I'm answering questions and helping it however I can because I love to help people. And somebody comes along in the comments is like, I'm in KU and I make $100,000 a year, but I guess you don't want to hear about my point of view, do you? Because you only want to hear about wide. And I responded and I said, that's right. Thank you for understanding. <laughs> it was kind of pissed. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm, even when you're like blunt with people and say, I really am not interested They just can't help themselves. And so I thought we need a place just for wide authors. And I love alliteration. So I was like, wide for the win. Why not? And so I started this group. Susie and I started this group about 18 months ago. And I know Mark Leslie LeBay pretty well. And so I invited him to join us. And then we started to get a couple more vendors. We got Robin from Eden Books. And I thought having vendors having company reps in the group is so helpful because mm, really you, helpful. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. If you have a question, if you have a problem, if you don't understand something, you aren't reaching out to some faceless, nameless email address and hoping that somebody who actually knows something is responding to you. You can build a relationship with these reps and outside of author conferences, that's not been a thing that I'm aware online. And so I thought, if I'm really going to break all the rules and have a wide only uh, group, let's break all the rules and have reps in this group too. And so I started making a concerted effort to invite reps. I'm continually inviting new reps into the group of companies that I feel like 
are useful for wide authors. Um, one of the groups or one of the companies that I'm most excited about, of course, is we just got BookBub online mm. on the, in the group. And that was a bit of a, uh, I did quite a bit of work behind the scenes and I was so thrilled when we got BookBub to join. But man, we have everybody. We have Ingram Spark and we have Kobo and D2D and Smashwords and Publish Drive and StreetLib. And oh man, I can't even tell you. Book Rank, Book Funnel, the list goes on. I don't, uh, yeah, every major company out there, pretty much I've been able to talk to, into joining the group three booksy. Um, well, there you go. Then I'm going to challenge you around the libraries is to get someone from some librarian organization who <gasps> likes indies and loves that kind of thing. Cause I feel like I'm also passionate about libraries and I just, how I market to libraries is I say, Hey, everyone listening, can you go and request yes. your library? Please request your favorite indie book at your library. That is your action point. And it would be great if, if this is something we could figure out, like, and, and I, I, I don't mean to put it on you like this, but since you're so passionate about libraries too, maybe that's something we can think about but you do well done on how much work you've done it's incredible mm. no it hadn't occurred to me to invite librarians I sometimes I, I sit there and think why did I not think of that but that is really a great idea I'll see what I can do there um, or someone what... from like Hoopla or one of the um, places where they are not necessarily the librarians themselves but someone who runs an organization or a company that works with librarians who has a bigger access in a way than just one library but just something to think about or if anyone listening knows what we're talking about or knows exactly the right thing then definitely reach out to Erin but so tell people so there's a book is there coming as well oh yeah (laughs) so that's a great story. I thought, all right, you know what? I, I love to write. I love to help people. I was a teacher before. I can totally write a book called Wide for the Win. Why not? <laughs> and so I decided to write this book and publish it and tell people all the different tips and tricks of how to be wide and wide mindset and long pre-orders and the whole kit and caboodle. And I worked on it for over a year. And I ended up with about 150,000 words of mess. <laughs> chapters were started, but not finished. There were repeats. There were chapters that were never even started. There was old information and something got changed and it only got updated and part of the book. It was, I am in awe of you and all the other people who can write nonfiction books about being an author because there it changes so quickly. Like the, the, publishing world is barreling down the tracks and I <laughs> I just could not keep up and so I finally said you know what I I need to I need to give it up I need to just say this isn't something that I'm capable of doing and I had actually started avoiding wide for the wind group I feel really guilty even saying that but I had felt so much guilt because I told everybody in the group I'm writing this book this is going to be this great book and you guys are all going to love it. And there were so many people who were way excited about this book. And then I started really struggling with it. And I didn't want to go look anybody in the group in the eye because I was being, I was a failure and I didn't want to admit that. And so I started avoiding the group. I didn't log in for a couple of months and it was all on Susie's shoulders. She just took it all. She's a champ. And I finally decided this isn't going to work. This isn't happening. 
I went into the group and I said, this is my mea culpa. I'm sorry. I promise I will be more active from here on forward, but you are not getting a book. And uh, Mark Leslie Lefebvre, a couple of weeks later, sends me a message on Facebook and he says, hey, what do you think if I were to write that book? And I literally let out a war whoop. I was so happy <laughs> because I want the book to be written. I just didn't want to have to write it. And he's writing the book. He is sharing a small percentage of the royalties with both Susie and I for our work with the Facebook group, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And I will be writing the forward and uh, for the book. It comes out in February of 2021. And he is using the amazing title Wide for the Win because <laughs> we stick with our branding, damn it. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And that is on uh, pre order uh, right now. So people can go to their favorite store, their favorite wide store, <laughs> and uh, pre order w- Wide for the Win. Absolutely. I don't believe it's actually up on Amazon yet, but, but it will be soon. And, and, uh, and yeah, you can go to your favorite storefront and and you'll be able to get it. Like I said, it's coming out February, 2021. So it'll be a little bit, but in the meanwhile, you should definitely join wide for the wing group. If you have not yet and learn because there's so much to learn. I'm learning every day. And I, yeah, like you, I've been in this for a while, but I think if you stop learning, it's, you need to just quit because (laughs) you're going to get so far behind. There's so much change that happens that you need to be learning every day. Absolutely. I think the problem up until Wide for the Win has been the information has been so skewed towards the the biggest, well, the biggest river, as as Mark has always said. And so having a source of information to learn from is great. And we should say this is a a free Facebook group uh, and you have some great rules which are really important and people will have to read them when they uh, join. And uh, yeah, I, th- I, I look forward to jumping back in there. I'm, I'm actually at the moment, I'm in that group every day looking like just hanging out. I do say something occasionally, but I'm learning a lot too. And I, so I really appreciate it. A big thank you for doing this because it's something I've thought about over the years and just gone, no, I cannot commit to that. So I'm thrilled that yeah. you've done it. Okay, well, tell us where can people find you and your books and everything you do on online? Uh, sure. So if they're into contemporary Western romance, then you're certainly free to check out erinwright.net. And it's the female spelling. So E-R-I-N with a W-R-I-G-H-T. So yeah, erinwright.net is my website, but that doesn't have anything to do with being an author. That's just what I personally write. If you are interested in the author part of it, definitely just go to Facebook and do a search for Wide for the Win. You'll find our group. You do have to answer three questions before you can be added into the group. And yeah, and then just join us over there because man, we we are learning and growing and we have a great time in the group. We really do. It's a very fun and friendly personable group with lots of useful information. I'm not a big fan of Facebook at all. I, like I said, I really thought setting this up, but my bookmark for Facebook is the wide for the win Facebook group so that I don't have to go to my main feed. I don't go to the main feed. I don't read it. (laughs) I don't care about it. (laughs) So I promise you can just be a part of wide for the win and not have anything to do with the rest of Facebook and it's going to be okay. (laughs) Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Erin. I've really enjoyed talking to you and I'll see you in wide for the win. Yay. Thank you so much. 
So I hope you found the interview with Erin interesting today and that it's given you some ideas for your publishing strategy. And remember, you can choose to go wide at any point in your career with ebooks, print books, audiobooks, all or some of those things. You just need to make a plan and get to it. And in the meantime, check out the Wide for the Win Facebook group for more tips. Links in the show notes. So next week, I'm talking to Derek Depka all about audiobooks, why they are great for your your author business, why self-narration can be a great idea, especially for non-fiction authors and his tips for making it easier. So that's coming up next week. Happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.